0: We call the time in between the Old and New Testaments, the 400 silent years. But was God truly silent during that time? What was going on then? And what can we learn from that time when He seemed silent in our lives? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer all these questions and more in our lesson today entitled, The Time Between the Testaments and what to do when God seems silent. Now here's our plan today. In our last lesson, we looked at the Apocrypha, the series of books that were written between the Old and New Testaments, and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that was also done at that time. We concluded that the Apocrypha was not a canonical part of our Bibles. In other words, an accepted part of our Bibles. And by the way, we are going to be having a lesson in the near future on how canonicity was determined and that whole process but for right now the Apocrypha was not a canonical part of our Bibles though the Septuagint is in fact it is a significant translation of the Old Testament text and it's the one that was used by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament now much more was going on at that time in between the Testaments and if we're aware of it it can be a rather if excuse me If we aren't aware of it, it can be a really jarring transition from the end of the Old Testament, if you were reading either Chronicles, if you're reading it in chronological order, or Malachi, the last prophet, if you then jump right into the New Testament. What is going on, you might ask yourself. Well, first of all, let me give you a summary of the differences. Now, I put together a little chart for this. It is available on Bible 805, but let me just go over it very briefly, and then we will go into more detail a little bit later in this lesson on these areas. But first of all, I've got a contrast for you between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. When the Old Testament closes, Judea is under Persian rule and there was moderate oversight. They weren't going to, they didn't really have a, um, they didn't have any standing army there. The people were allowed to do pretty much what they wanted to if they stayed within certain guidelines and sent in their taxes and things like that. But in the New Testament, very different. The people, the populace is tightly controlled and it's under under Roman rule. At the close of the Old Testament, a descendant of King David, a man named Zerubbabel, was the leader. Now he was not formerly powerful, but people knew that if things were different, he was the heir to the kingship. He was part of the Davidic line. But when we get to the New Testament, what has happened? We have actually a descendant of Esau on the throne as king of the Jews, even though he didn't have total power because he was under Rome, but Herod the Great was now the one in control. And again, not part of the line of David, part of the line of Esau. Then, at the close of the Old Testament, the temple was modest, but it was rebuilt, and Aaron's descendant was still the high priest we get to the New Testament, the temple is monumental. Once again, it's been built to really stupendous glory. Herod paid for all of that. He wanted the Jews to like him, no matter what he did, though they still hated him. But anyway, the temple itself was a very glorious structure. But the high priesthood was not a descendant of necessarily of Aaron, but it was more of a political position at that time. In the old, uh, when the Old Testament closes, it was written primarily in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, but primarily Hebrew. And once we get to the New Testament, the Old Testament is now now has now been translated into Greek. The center of worship in the Old Testament times, and when it closed, was still the temple. But when we get to the New Testament, Though the temple was still important, a lot of the center of people's real worship and study and learning had shifted to the synagogues. At the close of the Old Testament, there were prophets and there were scribes who taught the people about God. In the New Testament, When it opens, we have a variety of all these new groups. Where did they come from? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, just to name a few. Now, we'll be going over all of these in a few minutes and more on the history. But first, I want to look at something overall that's really important. And that is, I want to examine the label of this time as the quote-unquote 400 years of silence. It's usually interpreted the reason that they, they call it that because there were no prophets speaking at that time. The last prophet certifiably from God was Malachi. But prophets or no prophets the implications are really troubling does it mean that God just walks away from communicating with his people for hundreds of years? And why would he do that? And how should we respond, not only in looking back at that in history, but if we feel that he's silent in our lives? We need to answer this question first, because no matter what is going on in our world or our personal lives, we need to rely on our God and trust that he is truly never silent, no matter what outside circumstances might seem like. We need to remember that this was not the first time in the history of God's people that the prophets were not speaking to them. There are numerous times that God did not send prophets to verbally share new messages with the people. We don't have much recorded, except for the flood in Noah, between the fall and the calling of Abraham. We don't have any new prophets recorded while the people were slaves in Egypt. That was another 400 years. And let's be realistic. We don't have any new messages given to us in the 2,000 years since Jesus went back to heaven. But overall, God's silence never happens. He is never completely silent. There are three ways that he's always speaking to us. Number one, the heavens and our world declare his glory. And that never ceases. Now, if you're watching the video, I the picture that I'm showing you is a picture of a whole lot of succulents. Now, this is actually from my little garden. And I just love succulents. And I sometimes when I take people on a tour, of it and i ha- i literally have hundreds and hundreds of of succulents of different kinds and all of that i collect them and the reason that i do these wonderful little living sculptures i always look at them and i will say to people how can you not believe in a creator when these little plants just f- full blown become these marvelous little sculptures they to me are just one of the most fascinating things so our world is constantly declaring to us that not only do we have a marvelously creative God, but a God who loves beauty and who has given that to us. And we have his word. The people at that time had the completed Old Testament, including a prophecy in Daniel, which we'll get to in a little more detail in a minute, of everything that would happen from the time that the Old Testament prophets ceased speaking until New Testament times. It was a very clear and comforting road map for those who were willing to read it, where in Daniel's dream and image of a statue predicted All of the coming world powers. And again, we're going to look at that in just a minute. And then third, we have the Holy Spirit. Convicting unbelievers and guiding and comforting believers. Now, God's Word, His roadmap for people during those times... Again, they had the completed Old Testament, and part of that was the prophecy in Daniel of all that would happen in the coming years. There was this huge statue, and it predicted the coming world powers. The current one, when Daniel had his dream, was Babylon, and then the Medes and Persians would come, then Greece, then Rome, and all of those things happened exactly in the order and the way that Daniel dreamed they would. Again, it was the very a very clear and comforting roadmap for the people who were willing to read it. And he has the same thing for us in his word. He comforts us. He encourages us. He tells us what to do when times are difficult. And speaking of difficult times, what do we do about the dark nights of our soul, the times in our lives when it seems that God is silent. And that happens to everyone. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. And when those things happen, we need to remind ourselves that we had what the people had then. We can remind ourselves of God in nature and in our world. And we need to be sure that we know his word because it is a source for our comfort, his promises of what he will do now and in the future. Now, the thing, though, that we always need to remember, and I'm sure that people then had to remind themselves of this also, is that God does not work according to our timeline. Things, I could just about guarantee, that things almost always take longer than we want them to take. A problem, something we're working on, a relationship, a question, whatever it is, Sometimes, and almost always, it takes longer to resolve than we want. And realistically, we must be aware that sometimes it will take past our earthly life. All will be healed. All will be well. But that might not be until we get to heaven. And this saying that's rather popular in, in with a lot of people is actually quite good to remember, that says delay is not denial. So what should we do during these tough times? Just keep walking. Keep doing what you're doing and pray that you walk worthy. Keep reading God's word. Keep living as you know he wants you to live. Trust that he is a good God and ultimately all will turn out for good. Ask him for help, though, for wisdom and insight in the midst of trials. You know, in James 1, it says, whenever you're in trouble, it says, ask. It says, ask for wisdom. Now, I think we kind of skip over that. Sometimes we just hit on the ask part. But the reason that we ask for wisdom is... Is because we need to know how to act in the middle of that trouble. We need to know how we can best serve the Lord in that and sometimes a mental readjustment is what we need more than perhaps a change in our circumstances. Pray for yourself and for others for guidance during dark times that we will respond in ways that are pleasing to the Lord and that will be a witness for him. Now, what I'm going to say next might sound kind of icky, and I don't mean this in a mean way, but it seems like many, many church prayer lists, and and I, you know, I'm on a lot of prayer lines and stuff like that, are primarily concerned with physical healing. Now, that's okay, that's understandable. Um, I've gone through some really difficult um, physical. Situations and major surgeries and, and almost dying, and you know, all kinds of stuff. So, I, I mean, I totally understand um, how difficult all this can be. However, in addition to praying that if the Lord will, that He will heal, that He will protect, and the good things that we pray, one of the things that I pray most of all for people in those situations is that we will always respond in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and that gives him glory. God puts us in those situations not only for our growth and learning, but our actions of faith can have a tremendous influence on the people around us. What, whatever situation you're in, whatever you're doing, you can make that a witness for the Lord. And we need to pray that for ourselves and for others when we're going through tough times. Here's a very helpful verse to think about when you are sad or discouraged or in a tough time. It's Psalm 42.11 where it says, Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior. And my God. And again, I love that because there are times that we will be discouraged, that we will be sad, but we can put our hope in God. Let's now get into the specifics of what God was doing between the Old and New Testament. We're going to go over the overall history of it. Then we'll spend a little more time on who the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots were. And now before we start into this, I want you to think about really the long period of time that we're talking about. It's a total of about 400 years. Our chart has around 500, but it starts a little bit before this time. And just think about it. The United States is only 246 years old. So we're talking about quite a lengthy time. Now, let's start in with it. The first section is from 538 to 336 BC. Now, the people are back in the land of Judea, in Israel, and never again will they fall into idol worship or worship other gods. They are done with that. However, that doesn't mean they are wholehearted in their worship of the true God. Sloppy worship, neglecting the temple, neglecting supporting the priests, marrying pagan women, all of these things characterized this time as recorded in the last prophet Malachi. Now the Medo-Persians were ruling them. Cyrus was the one who allowed them to return to the land. The second temple was built. And, as we've talked about before, the last of the prophets ceased their writing. But the writing of the Talmud, or the commentaries on the Old Testament that was beginning. Now the second time that we talk about. Alexander the Great then comes in and conquers Persia. He gains control of all of Judea, and this is 336 to 332 BC. The synagogue spread, the Greek language becomes universal. Now, Alexander is actually quite a kind conqueror. He gives the Jews relative freedom. Greek does become their universal language. He really felt that the Greek language and culture was the very best thing there and he um forced, but it was easily accepted, all of the people that he conquered to speak Greek. During this time, and previously, the synagogues were spreading and becoming the primary place where people could study God's word, learn, and interact about their faith. Now, sadly, when Alexander died, on his deathbed, he was asked, who do you want to be your successor? And he responded by saying, the strongest. Then he died. That was not a good thing. Because that meant that his four most powerful generals just took different parts of it and fought and fought and fought and fought and this happened for quite quite a quite a long time. But for the next hundred years or so, the general that got Israel was Ptolemy, and he rules from Egypt. Now, he um, was actually a very kind, and and his successors were were quite kind. Uh, They ruled from 323 to 198 B.C. It is this time that the Septuagint is translated into Greek, and again he was a benevolent ruler. He admired the Jews. He encouraged learning greatly and scholarship in Egypt. He gathered scholars' books, and he is the one who created the great library of Alexandria, and actually it was his son who encouraged the translation of the Septuagint. Unfortunately, this time of peace and learning doesn't last. As another of Alexander's generals, the Seleucid family wants control of Israel. And now, it's not so much Israel itself that they care about, but Israel, if you picture in your mind, Um, Egypt down in the south and then Asia Minor to the north. Israel just happens to be the main trade route, the main land trade route connecting the two, and that's why it was so coveted. But the Seleucids, they mount this huge campaign, and they take over Judea. Now, they were not like the Ptolemies. They were really, really mean people. And they were in control from 198 to about 110 BC. The Pharisees and the Sadducees started up at this time, but just politically, in contrast to Ptolemy's admiration of the Jews and his kindness to them, one of the Seleucid uh, leaders, Antiochus III, and his son, Antiochus Epiphanes, they hated the Jews. They wanted to erase all things Jewish and replace it with all things Greek. They suppressed Jewish culture, customs, and worship. They slaughtered those who did not comply, and ultimately, they offered a pig on the altar of the temple. Now, Hellenization or this process of promoting all things Greek. It was forced on the people, though for many, they actually kind of liked it. They admired the Greek language and culture and the whole way of thinking. So, it wasn't the The whole process wasn't necessarily negative, but how they treated the religious Jews was a very unkind and nasty and terrible and horrible thing. So, and, but as happens with most tyrants, their suppression did not last, and a Jewish rebellion took place. The Jews were briefly then independent under either the Maccabees, or their actual name was the Hasmonean Dynasty. This took place from about 140 to 16 63, eight, 63 BC, excuse me, and they begin by restoring the temple, though years of fighting continue, and it's back and forth and back and forth. The rebellion was led by the Maccabean family and And after years of bloody battles, they finally took control over the nation. They cleansed the temple, and when they did that, that's what is known as Hanukkah. When they took over the temple after it being defiled by uh, slaughtering the pig and all the uh, lots of other terrible things that they did, they only had enough oil for the lamps for one day, and God miraculously gave them seven days of oil. And that is what we commemorate today as Hanukkah. Now they they did establish a very short-lived dynasty. It was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. Now what is very interesting about that is that is the last time Israel was an independent nation that spoke Hebrew all the way until 1949 which is just extraordinary how God kept that kernel of national identity and language intact for the many centuries in between. But this is when it ceased as an independent nation. Now, the Sadducees favored what was going on with the Hellenization. The Pharisees did not, and the Essenes just withdrew from the whole thing. But, None of them could stop fighting. The Hasmoneans still fought the, um, the the Syrians, and they you know they, everybody was basically fighting everybody else. And both sides then ask the rising power on the horizon to come in and settle some of their disagreements. And that power, of course, was Rome, which they were happy to do, but they didn't just settle their disagreements. They took over. Rome doesn't have a king of their own, so they approved what was known as a Herodian dynasty in 37 B.C. Herod had friends in Rome, and they made his family king. So there was no longer a Davidic king, no longer an ironic priest to it. They're relatively kind, actually, to the Jews compared to how they treated some other nations, and they do allow them to keep their religion, to keep the Sanhedrin, their ruling council of the Sadducees and the Pharisees going until 70 AD, when, of course, Jerusalem is destroyed. They don't care about the Davidic line. They give the kingship to Herod, who was actually a descendant of Esau. And the priesthood becomes a political office, primarily responsible for keeping the people in line. Now, the next question that we want to look at is who were the religious groups of the time when no overall priest or prophet spoke and the synagogue had become of primary importance to many? Well, first of all, we have the Sadducees. They arose around 200 BC, primarily as a political party, but they claimed their descendant from the priestly line of Zadok, who was was an earlier high priest. That was a little bit tenuous, but that's what they said that their roots were. They tended to be very wealthy, landed aristocracy, they totally embraced the Hellenic life, It was from their group that the high priests arose. They only accepted, though, the first five books of the Old Testament and none of the oral tradition, none of the writings in the Talmud. Now, based on that, they did not believe in angels, demons, or an afterlife. And if you were raised in Sunday school, you might have heard this little saying that goes something like this, where, you know, they're called the Sadducees, and because they didn't believe in an afterlife, they were saved. "Bad, you see!" Okay, I know, kind of a, whatever. But it does help you remember what they believed. Now, Jesus had a rather strong confrontation with them. This was um, when one day when they came to him and they said uh, they wanted to know, as Moses' tradition said, that if a man dies, his um, uh, brother should marry the widow. And then what if that man dies and then another brother marries the widow and another brother and another brother and on down the line. And they said, you know, if the man has has seven brothers, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus replied to them, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. His warning to them, His challenge to them. You don't know the scriptures. That's why you're in error. I think this is such an important warning and challenge for us today. It's the answer to so many problems of life today. It's because we don't know the scriptures. Now, the Pharisees were another group at that time. They came into being, after the Maccabean Revolt, as A group that was really opposed to all the Hellenizing influences, the popular ways of thinking and conforming to worship and, you know, saying, oh, it doesn't really matter and, you know, the the different gods are okay and, you know, it was kind of a, uh, literally a very popular way of thinking and the Pharisees said, no, 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 you are supposed to believe the Torah, the Five books, the law is um, important for everyone, but they also accepted the commentaries on them. And they loved to debate them, as Jesus often did with them. They believed in angels, in demons, in the afterlife. They were the teachers, the rabbis, and though they were often pretty strict, they were very popular with the people, as they wanted all people to have access to and to be able to obey the law. Now, in spite of their good intentions, Jesus often got into arguments with them and challenged them. For example, in Matthew 15, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. In this instance, and many others, Jesus answered them from the scriptures. And we need to be sure that we're living what we believe. They said that they believe the scriptures, but Jesus challenged them on that. And that we're living it with kindness and compassion. Now, there were a lot of godly leaders of the early church who actually came from the Pharisees, including the Apostle Paul. He was raised a Pharisee. And God used his extensive training in the scriptures to convince others later that Jesus was the Messiah. If he hadn't had that rigorous, rigorous training, he wouldn't have been so good at what call, God called him to do. And he also used his background when it was necessary. In Acts 23 6, he was on trial before the Sanhedrin that was made up, again, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And in the middle of it, he says, I am a Pharisee on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. <laughs> and that got them fighting with each other, and, and uh, things worked out okay for him. But... Um, Anyway, moving right along, we also have the Essenes. Now, they primarily just wanted to retreat from the world. If you're looking at the video, that is a picture of one of uh, some of their ruins that we've we've found outside of Jerusalem. Most likely, we would, we would know little to nothing about them, except they were the ones who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they really didn't have any significant impact on the religious discussions of the day. And then, too, we had the zealots. As a group, they varied in their beliefs, but they wanted to overthrow Rome. That was the one thing who, that they could all agree on. Some of them were much more violent than others, but they wanted Rome out of Israel, out of Judea. Now, it's interesting. We're not going to really get into the specifics of them because, but again, basically all they wanted to do was get rid of Rome. But Jesus had both Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector as his disciples. And he didn't focus on them. He didn't focus on their totally divergent political beliefs or whatever, because I think that's primarily a reminder to us that our loyalty and our citizenship is the kingdom of God, that that is what matters. Now, in summary, the world between the Testaments was filled with political upheaval, fragmentation of religious beliefs and practices, some held tightly to the scriptures, some wanted to get all they could out of the current world system, some simply retreated. And in many ways it's very much like our world today. Like them. We're living in an in-between time, from when Jesus went back to heaven to his return when he will make all things new. Now what should we do during this time? Jesus tells us very clearly in a number of places and one of the best ones is just before he went back to heaven where he says in Acts 1 4 through 8. Now listen carefully because there's a whole lot packed into this that we can learn from. The context is it says that he was eating with them and he commanded them. He said don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised as I told you before. John baptized with water but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, what's kind of interesting is the way they respond. It's kind of like, are you listening? Or, you know, whatever. They go, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Now, I would imagine Jesus must want to just hit his head against a wall at that, because he'd been with them for so long, and that wasn't what it was all about. And he just says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. We cannot hear this enough, because today there's all kinds of people worrying about end times this and end times that, but that's always been going on, ever since the day Jesus left, as we see in this passage. But he said, that's not what you are to be focusing on. He. This is what we're to focus on. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Timing isn't our concern, but being his witness is. And we can't do that well unless we know him well. And of course, to do that, We need to spend time in His Word. Now, to help you do that, I put together a little book for you. Now, it's available. You can download it. It's an ebook, um, and it's on the Bible 805 website. It's a little Bible reading plan, and it um, it's just something to help you get into reading the Bible regularly if you're not doing that. Next year, we're going to be going through the entire Bible uh, book by book in chronological order, but this is something I put together to help you until that time. I also have journaling ideas in it, and... Um, it just it it it's not very many pages, you know. Download it, get into it, and I think it will be a really easy introduction to the Bible for you. It's just New Testament. It's what early believers are encouraged to read, and so um, it's yours with my blessing. Now, the best thing that you can do during this in-between time is to get to know God's Word and to live according to it then no matter what happens you'll be on the right road living as your lord wants you to and that's the best way to live in between time and time whatever you think it might be and always that's all for now please check out the show notes the downloads the outline the and especially this ebook that i have for you this time at www Bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.